Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I'm very excited about this week's topic and very excited to have our guests. We're going to be talking about a slightly different angle of climate change that we have really only barely touched on before. Oftentimes, when we talk about climate change on Go Green Radio, we talk about mitigating climate change. In other words, doing all we can to reduce our carbon footprint so we're not putting more and more heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere that are contributing to climate change. But today, we're going to take things into a new direction, and that is how can we adapt to the climate change that we're already experiencing. And I'm proud to say that my own state, California, is leading the way with a very scientific approach. And today, our guests are Dr. Robert Weisenmiller, who is the chairman of the California Energy Commission, and Dr. Suzanne Moser, who's one of the leading scientists who've worked on a recent body of research that we're going to be talking about today that's helping California communities and individuals adapt to climate change and assessing where in the state, and this is a big state, we have specific vulnerabilities to climate change. And I'm so pleased that they could join us. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Doctors Weisenmiller and Moser. Good morning. Good morning. Well, congratulations on this new body of research that was recently released. And Dr. Weisenmiller, before we discuss the specifics of the research uh, that you've included in this new climate change report, I'd love for you to give our listeners kind of an introductory overview of the purpose of this study and some of the systems within the state that were assessed for vulnerability to climate change. Sure. It's my pleasure. Uh, this study was, was released a few weeks ago by both the California Energy Commission and the state's Natural Resources Agency. And it's the third of a series of major studies on what we should be doing on adaptation. Uh, and we, this the first one was in 2006, uh, and now we're preparing the next one for, for this year. The study was actually made up of more than 30 peer-reviewed studies conducted by over uh, 120 leading scientists and 26 research teams. Uh, the studies are the result of a two-year effort involving numerous state and local agencies and these research teams, and we're collaborating to identify the impacts of climate change and to identify feasible options for adaptation. The study provides the best science 
knowledge that we now have to try to develop public policy to address these climate change, address climate change. The study will be used as the foundation for the 2012 climate adaptation strategy, which mm-hmm. the state's natural resources agency plans to release in December of this year. Now, it's very important for us that we base our policies upon the science and the, the data in these reports. And these reports cover a wide range of issues for California, uh, energy demand and supply, ecological issues including wildfires, water supply, public health, agricultural, and coastal resources. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to statewide analysis, the study also included local case studies because we want to understand that much of the adaptation work ahead will take place at the local level. We also included a regional study for the nine counties in the San Francisco Bay Area region. Another new aspect of these studies is that we're really beginning to identify the potential barriers to adaptation, including regulatory, legal, institutional, and socioeconomic issues. And certainly, uh, Dr. Mosier is one of the pioneers in this area of work. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Moser, I watched the uh, the YouTube video of a recent press release or press conference where you and several other speakers uh, introduced these reports, and you had some very interesting comments on why this particular body of research is so innovative and so unique. And I'd love for you to share that with our listeners. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, as Dr. Uh, Weisenmiller was just saying, um, this is the third time that we're doing a comprehensive assessment for the state. Um, and I'd say there are three things that are really new this time around. Um, and, and let me just say sort of as an overarching statement for the studies that we're really trying to actually do science that is useful for decision makers as sort of a general theme that runs through the entire thing. But so one of the first things that managers and planners ask us is, well, it's nice, you know, to just say climate change is going to happen, but how likely is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we're um, made a lot of progress on in this assessment is to really look at this pr- from a probabilistic point of view. That means, you know, how likely is a particular change? How high is the sea level going to be at a certain time? How many uh, heat extreme heat days will we get at a certain time in the future given certain uh, emission scenarios? So. That was the first uh, innovation, and, you know, let me just sum that one up really simply to say that the more heat-trapping gases we emit now and in the years to come, the more likely is it that we'll see very unpleasant uh, and, in some cases, outright dangerous conditions in California. The second new thing about this assessment compared to its predecessors is that we didn't just look at potential impacts of climate change, but we looked at our vulnerability to them. Now, that may sound a little bit like academic shop talk or something, but there's actually a real distinction between impacts and vulnerability. So let me try to explain that for a moment. When you look at potential impacts, you start with climate models, you feed scenarios of how emissions might evolve in the future into them, then you model global changes and you bring them down to the local level, and then you feed those projections into uh, impact models. And in the end, what you can say is that's what, that's what might happen here in the future. With vulnerability, we actually start not from the top of climate and go down. We start from the ground up. We first look at what and who is exposed to these potential climate threats and then how severely might they be impacted if they actually get to experience a particular kind of change 
And then the third thing is that we look at can or can they not cope with or adapt to these changes. And if they can cope with those changes, then they're just not as vulnerable. And so, you know, this is a really a new way of looking at it. Um, it gives you a much more realistic sense of what the future might hold. Um, and then the third thing um, that we did in this study is that um, we actually looked at what can we do to prepare for or minimize future risk um, in climate, and that's really something that the managers wanted us to look at. So we have a lot of studies now that look at how much um, something would cost or what's already going on, what communities are already doing, um, and what gets in the way of implementing what looks like the most feasible or effective strategy. Um, And so for the first time here, you find something for every sector, essentially. And it's not the last word. You know, adaptation sciences have to continue just like physical climate science. Um, but it, it offers us really new insights into what um, managers and policymakers can do to prepare for future climate risks. And it shows that there, those type of activities are just as urgent and necessary as reducing the causes of climate change on the front end. Right. Well, it sounds to me like from a layman's perspective, not being a scientist myself, that what you've created is something truly, truly pragmatic, very useful science that takes us out of the theoretical or, uh, you know, the, the broad brush strokes of this is what climate change may do to the region and right down to a very pragmatic approach that that public policymakers and even individuals can take, and I think that's that's, right. that's very exciting. Yeah. Now, Dr. Weisenmiller, um, you know, you are the chairman of the California Energy Commission, and and you know, energy is a huge, huge component of what makes this state's economy work. What uh, we have to deal with in order to keep our citizens comfortable, and and all of that. And as temperatures rise with climate change, we know that the demand for electricity will rise as well. And I'm wondering, according to this research, how much more electricity California will need to either generate or to purchase. Uh, and what are we going to do to meet that estimated demand? Is it realistic that we can? Um, what's the outlook there? No, that, that's a great question because obviously one of, one of my responsibilities is making sure that we have reliable power. And, you know, we, will, we have started incorporating the science into our planning so that we will uh, indeed keep the lights on in the state. But, I mean, one of the, having said that, one of the first things I should note is that it's it's already starting to have an impact uh on you know the climate change is real and it's already starting to affect our our needs in the state and an example one of the things the report points out is that between 1895 and this year that average temperatures in California have gone up 1.7 degrees so that translates into higher electric needs right now it translates into you know, basically, we are already paying some of the cost of climate mm-hmm. change. Now, having said that, that's just the beginning, that this report indicates that looking out to 2050, now that the temperatures can go up another 2.7 degrees. Oh, roughly. my. And that looking out to 2010 or to 2000, looking out to the end of the century, we're talking about an increase that could be from four point additional four point one to eight point six degrees. All that is very substantial increases in temperature. Uh, now, at the same time, looking at the impacts on our energy needs relative to what would have happened otherwise, that 
first we see that the impacts will be much greater on peak periods, you know, that we have both energy sales throughout the year and we also have that peak summer period when Mm -hmm. it's very hot, maybe the third or fourth day. And what we're seeing is that the impacts are much greater on peak so that looking out uh, to to the, in about 10 years, we expect our peak loads could be up about a gigawatt, and that is out of basically increasing from 60 to 61, so that's a significant impact. We are including that in our plans now for how much additional resources we need. And But having said that, looking out to 2100, we're talking about an increase of 38% or an additional 17 gigawatts for peak period. So that's, again, the period when the electric systems are most stressed, the reliability challenges are greatest, certainly people are most impacted, and we will have to incorporate that in our planning. Now, looking at annual sales, the percentage increases are not as much, but they're still real. And so by, again, 2100, we're talking about an increase of on the order of about 10%. On sales, but again, peak. You know, the message is it's already affecting peak. We're planning for how it's going to affect it in the next ten years, and it's going to be a very big effect by the end of the century. In terms of where we have options, I mean, we do have a huge number of options for in the energy area. Obviously, additional energy efficiency, additional renewables, and we are incorporating that into our plans so that we can make wise choices now. And, mm-hmm. again, meet our needs in the most cost-effective fashion, both in terms of environmental impact and economic impact. Well, and just because I sometimes I kind of translate to my audience in sort of kitchen table language, correct me if I'm wrong. Here's what we're talking about. Peak times are daytime hours, generally, and that's when factories are running, everybody's at work, uh, schools are in session when it's not summer. It's the time when we're using the most electricity. Uh, it's also the time when electricity is the most expensive. Um, and so as, you know, the days get really hot every year, this happens, you know, anyway, when it gets really, really hot, everybody's really cranking up the air conditioning, and we're using a lot more energy than we would say at midnight for the most part. So what we're really talking about is the energy um, supply during those hours that maybe we don't need in the middle of the night, but trying to meet that need. Sometimes right now we have what's called peaker plants. When those of you who watch the flex alerts and you know that, oh, we're using a lot of energy in the state right now and and try to reduce what you're using, um, sometimes peaker plants come on and oftentimes those are the most polluting power plants that we have. Um, so if we want to have clean energy and enough energy to meet peak hours, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering how we're going to do that. Uh, first of all, when we know there's a lot of nimbyism <laughs> in the state, everybody wants to use energy, but nobody wants an energy plant in their backyard. Uh, and then, you know, how are we going to do that without using the most polluting fuels to, to make that happen? Um, where, where did I go wrong on that, Dr. Weisenmiller? Uh, no, that's a very good summary. I mean, again, it, those peak periods, you know, it, it's, you know, when people are in the middle of the night, when people are sleeping, the factories are down, it's relatively cool, it's very easy to meet supply and demand. On the other hand, when you get to that summer day, and it's probably the fourth day of a heat storm, mm-hmm. and 
you know, at that point, we are running our most expensive power plants. They're certainly the dirtiest at that point. And what we're trying to do is, is balance that. Now, obviously, we will send out flex alerts, you know, to maintain, to keep the demand and supply in balance. But that's mm-hmm. when was, that's when the cost in terms of economic and environmental are the greatest. And so, one, you know, we're doing a variety of things in terms of energy efficiency, in terms of uh, distributed gen that mm-hmm. can reduce people's needs for during those times. Uh, but again, that's, that's when a lot of our planning really has to zero in on how do we meet the challenging times, not the easy mm-hmm. times. Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk much, much more about this. We've got to take a quick commercial break, so don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us today, we're talking about not just climate change, but how to adapt to climate change. And maybe we could even say how to thrive during climate change. And California has done something very unique. It's created a body of research that is helping public policymakers in specific regions of the state understand the likelihood of certain climate changes that may affect their region. And furthermore, what they can do to help the human beings in their uh, in their purview under their uh, regional territories uh, continue to thrive and live well even under these climate change conditions if you want to check out the website that will give you a lot more information don't close your tab in this web browser keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com but open a new tab in your web browser and go to www.climatechange.com 
www.ca.gov. And if you scroll down a little bit on the right-hand side, there's a area called Popular Links. And if you click on Adaptation, that's where you can get all the information on this recent body of research that has come out. Today, our guests are Dr. Weisenmiller. He's the chairman of the California Energy Commission. And Dr. Suzanne Moser, who was one of the leading scientists who's been involved in all three iterations of this climate change study that uh, the state of California has been undertaking since 2006. Dr. Moser, you know, the, the human aspect of this study is, is profound, and um, I really like the way that this study focuses on how we can help those who are most vulnerable to climate changes adapt and, and still thrive. Um, talk to us about some of the regions and some of the demographics that will be most vulnerable to um, the particular climate change of rising temperatures, which is what we think of most often with climate change. And then talk about how the state can prepare some adaptation plans for these regions and for these groups who are so vulnerable. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The this human aspect is really something that we focus on in this uh, assessment. Well, so let me look at um, vulnerability um, and the three pillars of vulnerability that I uh, tried to explain earlier. So when you have extreme heat, the first thing you want to actually think about is who is actually exposed to it the most? Um, well, um, those who have to work outside and who can't escape inside to get some air conditioning, outdoor workers on farms or construction sites, for example, um, those would fall into the, that category. So that's a group that we should be really concerned about. A second is who is most sensitive to it? Well, what we know from public health studies conducted here both in California and elsewhere is that the elderly and the very young children are physiologically just more sensitive to heat. Mm-hmm. Just, their bodies just can't deal with it as easily as, say, a young uh, 17-year-old adult or something. <laughs> Right. Uh, but those who um, have, or, or people who have already existing health conditions or who take certain medications, they're particularly sensitive. And then the third question is who can or can't cope with extreme heat? And so people in poverty often don't have the means to pay for all the air conditioning that could get them safely through an extended heat wave, like Chair Weisenmiller was talking about earlier. Um, so they're particularly vulnerable. Um, often it's the same group of people who doesn't have good health insurance, and so they might choose not to go to a doctor or hospital um, if they really should during a heat extreme. And so you ask, how can the state prepare for those sorts of things? Well, um, the use of a vulnerability assessment, in my mind, is really giving you um, a lot of detailed information about how you can intervene so that you can reduce people's vulnerability in all those ways, you know, make sure that they are not as exposed or um, help those who are most sensitive. So, for example, we could make sure that our laws get, re- uh, get enforced that give outdoor workers adequate breaks and opportunities to drink water. Um, foster general public health, make sure there's a neighborhood buddy system where folks check on their elderly neighbors to make sure they're okay during a heat wave, Um, provide adequate information to doctors and nurses and caretakers about how heat and other health conditions interact. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, things like providing community cooling centers that even people without cars or with mobility challenges can get to them. So there's just so many ways in which state and local governments can work together with neighborhood associations and civic groups to increase overall heat preparedness and adaptation to climate change. Well, and what's really interesting about what you just mentioned is that some of those options will have a cost to them, but some of them don't. I mean, a a community buddy system doesn't have 
to be a huge public expenditure at all. Um, right. You know, th- there are so many creative ways to make these things happen. Um, I love the fact that there's a large menu of options that are presented in the study. Yeah, um, if I can just point to one sure. example, the city of Philadelphia has um, a really extended heat health warning system that includes this buddy system. And there are studies that were done that basically show it is so cost-effective to have a good system like this. I mean, it saves hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars when you think about the lost productivity of uh, people being ill or, you know, people dying from heat. So it is absolutely cost-effective to do something like this. Well, and I think, you know, we've talked about this issue on a number of, of issues when we talk about um, community involvement in, in any kind of greening issues. But when you talk about climate change, often it does come back to, look, we all know that our government's broke. <laughs> and if we're going to wait for, you know, funding from on high to come in and fund the government manpower it would take to solve all these problems, it may just be kind of a pipe dream. But what can make a difference is communities coming together, that good old-fashioned civic engagement and, and neighborly, you know, concern um, can actually help us get through some of these challenges. And I, I really like that that's been incorporated into the study. Um, you know, Dr. Weisenmiller, big headlines right now are wildfires everywhere, in, not just in the state of California, but of course we saw in Colorado and so many other places where these wildfires are just causing tremendous devastation. And besides the fact that when a wildfire burns, all the carbon that's been sequestered inside those trees is released, and of course that you know, contributes to the heat trapping gases in the atmosphere. Um, one of the things that the study showed is that there will be a propensity for more wildfires. And what I didn't realize is that some of the same regions in California that are predicted to be the most susceptible to increased fires are also areas that contain significant electricity transmission lines for the energy that we purchase from the Pacific Northwest. I'd love for you to talk more about this dilemma and what the CEC and other agencies will be working on to address this vulnerability. Yeah, it, it is, as you mentioned, a topic that's really all of us have to, you know, see in the headlines every day, the fires. But I mean, one of the most important aspects, I thought, of the data coming out from our event was that uh, Cal Fire, uh, Ken Pimblock, mm-hmm. and basically, historically, California has had one severe wildfire every decade. Having said that, since about 2000 and 2001, we've had severe fires every year. So, mm-hmm. again, this the message is climate change is happening now, you know, that the combination of hotter summers, you know, hotter days, more sustained and drier, is certainly impacting our forest and, you know, making wildfire issues something that we we have to deal with now. It's not something that's 10 or 20 or, or 50 years off. And you're right, we have these high-voltage transmission lines that bring power from the northwest. I mean, these, these were built, you know, um, back in the, in the LBJ era, frankly, and uh, have provided a lot of synergies and a lot of benefits to both regions. But there's certainly those types of corridors are very vulnerable to fires. And so we have to uh, look at how do we adapt to the realities. I mean, first of all, that means we have to think much more about local, locally generated electricity, you know, that we need 
And again, you've talked about the, the NIMBY type of issues, but we need to be able to produce power in our major metropolitan areas. We've mm-hmm. gone through the high-voltage lines. We see some of the dangers in the northwest coming in at the top part of the state, but others on the lines feeding power into Los Angeles. So we need to make sure that we have sufficient abilities to generate power in the L.A. Basin and not just rely upon power coming in from from externally. We also need to identify the areas where we really need highly reliable power, things like our military bases, our hospitals, our university campuses, our data centers. And for those, we're doing a lot of research on microgrids, which are sort of mini electric utility systems. We're using advanced control technologies now on computers You can basically balance supply and demand, and you can integrate into, for those types of facilities, uh, renewables, you know, cogeneration on site, you know, demand response, a variety of technologies to make sure you really need very, very reliable power. It's there. Uh, The other things which which we're doing now, I mean, when you look at our utilities, uh, they now have meteorologists on staff because they are aware of the dangers of fires to their systems. Uh, San Diego, I mean, we had tragedies down there in 207 from wildfires near their lines. But they now have drones, which they will have in the air to sort of track the, you know, where the fire, when fires develop, operate, you know, where it is, how close it's getting to different uh, transmission lines. Uh, they have also rewired some of their electrical systems so they can shut off parts of the power uh, as the fire spread. So, again, we have to adapt right now to these hazards, and certainly some of our really critical infrastructure, you know, is, is in danger because of uh, the greater fire hazards. Mm-hmm. This is so interesting, and I, I really think that a lot of folks – would be very interested to know. I mean, just everyday Californians would be so interested to know just how delicate and how sensitive their energy supply really is. I think folks in Southern California got a glimpse of that uh, last year when there was a huge power outage across different parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Southern California. And if I remember correctly, that was just from one wire being tripped between, was it Arizona and California? And look at all the folks who were out of power. Um, so I think, you know, that this, this idea of distributed generation where communities are making a significant amount of their own energy is, is so incredibly smart. But of course, that's also going to mean that communities get a real handle on, um, their energy efficiency and energy conservation measures so that they can both measure their community's load, you know, of electricity needs, but also, you know, what it's going to take in terms of renewables or other sources of energy to meet that. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll be talking about some of the other climate changes that are expected. And for those of you who do not live in California, many of your own states are putting some of these same plans together. And if they're not, well, talk to your public officials, talk to your state representatives, talk to your 
energy commission uh, counterparts that are the linear counterparts of Dr. Weizenmiller's California Energy Commission. This is smart science, pragmatic science. It's going to help the communities in California uh, thrive during conditions of climate change. So uh, fear not. If your state's not doing it, they could. And learn what you can from the way that California is taking its science um, to create great public policy. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you ever wanted to ask a direct question to a private investigator? If so, you'll want to listen for the Private Eye Nightline with private investigator John Siakio. John and his guest experts will answer your questions about infidelity, drug issues, custody, restraining orders, and more. Sometimes there are sensitive issues involving a family member or other loved one. We're here to help. The Private Eye Nightline is broadcast live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'd like to give a big shout out to all my tweeps and everybody who's on our Go Green face space on Facebook who are loyal listeners to Go Green Radio. I want to say hello to all of you. If you'd like to get involved with our conversations on Twitter and Facebook, we're all over the place. But the hub of all this information is at our 
Go Green Initiative website, which is www.gogreeninitiative.org. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, we are get joined today by Dr. Wisen Miller, the chairman of the California Energy Commission, and Dr. Suzanne Moser, who's one of the leading scientists who helped to create this amazing body of research that has just been released um, that deals with the adaptation strategies that local and regional government public policymakers can take to help the the state of California thrive and continue to prosper during a variety of different climate changes that we expect to be seeing and that the science shows us we will be seeing in the next few years. Some of it, as Dr. Wisenmiller mentioned in the last segment, is happening already uh, in terms of our, our wildfire situation. You know, Dr. Moser, uh, I know that California is not alone in this. Um, water is contentious. There are lawsuits all over the southeast and in state after state uh, suing each other over water rights. But in California, uh, water is the only issue that I know of that can take partisan politics in Sacramento, which is, you know, a blood sport, um, and, and turn it into something new. All of a sudden, uh, Republicans and Democrats kind of shed their partisan colors and go to north and south when it comes over uh, to, to water issues. And they, they all of a sudden begin to unite regionally uh, over water issues. And I'm just curious to know what the study shows um, our water issues are going to be, how our water supply is going to be affected by climate change and how the regions of the country or of the state that are that are in charge of water management can adapt to that. Yeah, so there's two key factors I'd say we need to look at to understand the impact of climate change on our water supplies. One is temperature, the other is precipitation. In other words, the amount and timing of rain and snowfall that we'll get. So let me take each in turn. Higher temperatures, um, they will have two important implications for California. One is that higher temperatures increase evaporation of water from the soil and water surfaces like lakes and and streams and reservoirs. In other words, if it gets warmer, we lose some of that water that's stored in the surface layer of the land and and in these water bodies. Um, But the other thing is that higher temperatures push the snowfall line higher up the mountains. So if snowfall used to come down to, say, uh, 2,000 feet in the future, it might not snow below 3,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but why is that important? Well, in California, our w- biggest water supply sponge, if you will, um, is the winter snowpack. Uh, it melts slowly over the spring, and we collect that water behind big dams and live off of it during the dry summer months when it doesn't rain at all. Well, by having more precip fall as rain rather than the snow, we have less of that safe water storage. Uh, rain runs off when it falls, and we can only keep so much in the reservoirs because they also have to protect us against flooding, and so we can't let them to be all that, you know, as full. So mm-hmm. we end up with less water stored for the long, hot, dry summer months. Um, so before we're talking about any changes in the amount of rainfall over the state, higher temperatures alone could cause a problem um, because of those two changes. And then there's the question of whether we'll still get as much more or less precip in the future as we do now. California is in a climatic zone that is characterized by quite a bit of variability in rainfall from year to year. So this year, for example, it's drier. Last year it was wetter. We expect that sort of basic character of our climate to actually stay the same in California, but virtually all the climate models used in the third assessment show 
that in the second half, by the second half of the century, there seems to be a tendency toward overall drier conditions. In other words, in just a few decades from now, it's not just going to be hotter here, um, which will dry us out, but we'll also get, on average, less rainfall per year. And while these reductions are not huge in terms of percentage points, in a climate like ours, just a little uh, reduction like this makes a huge difference. Um, because, as you said, water is highly politicized as you hear in California, with many stakeholders having very legitimate concerns about water availability. This, right now, would be a really good time to get serious about thinking about how will we live and live well with less water to go around. Mm-hmm. And uh, does the study talk about creating more water storage, or does it get that specific? Well, there's a number of studies, and obviously this is, you know, because water is such an important issue here in the state, um, that has been studied in every one of these assessments. Um, Again, you know, the the different to uh, previous ones is that we, you know, we don't just um, study one single approach, but we look at the range of approaches from water conservation to uh, managing it more effectively, actually using science to become more efficient in our uh, in our management decisions, um, but then also, and that's actually a really big issue, to look at um, the barriers that get in the way of doing the right thing, if you will. Um, and that is actually where it, that's really the tough part, you know. Yeah. Say you're a water manager, your job depends on you um, doing the right thing. Um, it is really tricky for people in that position to um, make decisions when the future is less certain. So how can we best support them um, to make those decisions with greater, if you will, confidence that, you know, it's a robust decision? So there's a number of studies that looked at just how we can change our decision-making procedures. Um, There are some other studies that have um, basically, you know, looked at whether it's cost-efficient to build another huge dam somewhere, and for the most part what we find is that it's not cost-efficient. There's really other mechanisms. There's huge issues around water conveyance through the Delta issue that we've looked at. So there's just a number of of different aspects that need to be understood before major changes can be made. But I would say, you know, starting to look at these institutional barriers is probably a really important place because they're not easy and quick to change. That is so true, so true. You know, Dr. Weisenmiller, earlier this year I was down in Los Angeles and I was giving a talk to an auditorium full of teenagers, um, high school students, and I asked them to guess how much of the water that they use in their region of California actually comes from the L.A. area and how much comes from other parts of either the state or the country. They were shocked to learn that only 11% of their water actually actually comes from their local area and that one percent of that is water conservation so they they couldn't believe that they were so dependent upon other regions for their water and what a lot of people don't realize is that here in the state of california um we it takes a lot of electricity for us to actually move that water to Southern California because it has to come over uh, mountains and you know through a long long area, and there's a there's a really interesting nexus between the amount of water it takes to create electricity in the state and the amount of electricity it takes to move 
water. And I would love for you to talk about that water energy nexus, how climate changes will impact this delicate relationship between water and energy and, uh, and what we're going to do about it. Exactly. No, I mean, first, as you indicated, uh, you know, a, a, there is this, you know, relationship. Part of it certainly is on the demand side, you know, that, uh, when we look at moving all that water around from northern to southern California and oh, not only that, but treating and disposal of wastewater mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and also, frankly, you know, we, we have, we heat water in our houses, you know, energy and water go back and forth. And so we, you know, nearly 20% of the total electricity consumed in California is the result of that water nexus. And about 30% of the non-power plant-related natural gas is also related to, to water. So, I mean, it's a significant part. And, you know, when you look at state government, you know, we are certainly a, a significant user of energy. And the largest part of, of our use of energy is not the buildings. It's really Department of Water Resource. And that's in its conveyance of the water throughout the state. So there's a huge role of moving water around in terms of our energy needs and also as as we discussed earlier water that water movement is a key part or hydropower is a key part of our supply system you know 15 percent of our energy comes from hydro Mm -hmm. and at the same time a lot of it because of the snowpack you know this can very right now this very convenient storage where basically the snowpack converts that winter rain or snow into basically power for us during the summer peak. And so with that storage going away, that snow storage going away, that's going to have significant impacts, again, on our supply system and also on, you know, what we need to do on the peak, where, again, we talked about that being a major effect. Now, Mm -hmm. some of the things we're doing on trying to deal with the water-powered nexus is that first... One of the things which, which the Energy Commission has been doing since uh, about 2000, actually a little bit earlier than that, is making sure that all new power plants basically use something called dry cooling, which are sort of these huge radiators instead of once-through cooling, to mm-hmm. basically cool the power plants. And that substantially reduces their, their water consumption. It's also true that one of the other things we're doing is when we look at wind and solar photovoltaics, they really don't need water for, for operating the power plants, for cooling. So they're also becoming a more important part of our resource mix and reducing the impact of our energy needs or electricity production on what's effect on our water system. Uh, having said that, you know, again, looking out as I'm trying to estimate what our needs are going to be for power, obviously, you know, agriculture is one of, one of our key industries in the state. Mm-hmm. And so looking at their water needs over time as we go into this drier climate, that's going to be very important. And it's also very important that we look at the water conveyance on how to do that in ways that, that minimize climate change. So one of the more exciting things announced recently is that the Department of Water Resources is phasing out of a contract that it has had to get power from an out-of-state coal plant and instead, it's going to be relying more on in-state resources, including a gas plant at Lodi, but also looking more at renewables. So it's, it's very important we look at both sides of that water energy nexus mm-hmm. and try to figure out 
how to you know deal with the demand side and also what it means what we can do on adaptation on the supply side Right. Well, and with the demand side, I mean, the more we keep developing in places like, you know, the Inland Empire and things like that, where they're already kind of water starved, the more development that goes in there, the more water they need, the more electricity they need. It, it's just, it creates a lot of difficulty. Our population centers don't necessarily seem to be quite aligned to the natural resources available. So that's, you know, those are hard issues. People want to live where they want to live, but um, we need to understand the strain that that's putting on our natural resources. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we've got much more Go Green Radio, so don't go away, folks. There's more right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. one 472 5787 That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%. Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just before the break, we were talking about water issues. We were talking a little bit about uh, water demand and supply. Also, the nexus between how much water it takes to create electricity and how much electricity it takes to move water in the state of California. But there are other water issues that, of course, will be, um, be experienced in conjunction with climate change. Just this week, we read a story about the first round of evacuations of island inhabitants in um, a place called Cunayala, and that's a chain of islands off the coast of Panama. And, and the first round of folks um, who were living on one of the islands that had to be moved to the mainland um, happened just recently uh, because the rising sea levels were creating such dangerous living conditions that they have to be permanently replaced. And we're going to see this more and more um, in island nations. This is going to be a dramatic change in the way of life for these people. Dr. Moser, according to the research that you've been working on, how will California be impacted by rising sea levels? And are our coastal communities prepared for that? Yeah, the sort of stories you just mentioned, they're um, already becoming more and more common. And in fact, um, you already hear them increasingly, as you said, for small island nations like Tuvalu and Kiribati. And uh, actually, if you pay really close attention, you can start to hear them 
uh, much closer to home. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed uh, uh, stories about Native Alaskan villages like Nutuk that are being relocated right now because yes. literally the ground under which on which they're built is, is crumbling under their feet. Uh, similarly, on the coast of Louisiana, uh, which has some of the highest rates of uh, relative sea level rise in the nation, um, there are uh, communities that are losing their land at an alarming rate uh, due to the rising oceans. And then, you know, people like the mayor of Nor- Norfolk, Virginia, has publicly acknowledged that some parts of his city may have to be abandoned in the future. Um, so it is a serious issue, um, and it is one of those more, more certain um, and certainly, uh, for all intents and purposes, irreversible impacts of climate warming. Here in California, the sea level has already risen just about seven inches in the last century, and it's expected to rise between four and eight times at that rate um, in the next hundred years, so much wow. faster change than we've seen in the past. And, of course, that's going to cause problems with flooding and coastal erosion and cliff failures, um, and it could, could uh, cause us to lose some of our uh, remaining coastal wetlands, um, very expensive impacts on coastal infrastructure such as roads and airports and port facilities, and, of course, on people's homes along the coast. Um, I was leading a study just about five years ago that looked at whether coastal communities in California were looking at these problems and are developing strategies to adapt. And back in 2006, I could count the number of coastal cities and counties literally on one hand that had even just started to look at these uh, issues (laughs) with accelerating sea level rise. Now, just a few months ago, we completed another survey that went back to these coastal communities, and what we found is that nearly everyone is now paying attention. About 40% of the respondents in our survey um, said that they're trying to understand what the risks are that they're facing. Another 40% said they're in the midst of adaptation planning. And just about another 10 or so said that they're already making some changes on the ground. Now, 10% of actual measures being implemented, that's not a lot. But overall, we saw a dramatic shift compared to five, six years ago. So people are looking at the problem and are building their own knowledge and capacity to how to uh, deal with these tricky problems. And the state is really active uh, in developing guidance and supporting tools to help local governments develop some plans. So I think where the rubber meets the road, of course, is in funding and in getting coastal communities and property owners and developers to accept that the shoreline is moving and that the risks to them are growing. But I see it as a really positive sign that communities are now paying attention and taking these issues seriously. Mm-hmm. And I thought that um, Governor Brown's uh, senior policy advisor on these issues, Ken Alex, said it best um, in the press conference when you all were releasing the re- research. He said, we are not helpless. And that's such a positive that's, that's message. Right. Yeah. We we can do this. We can absolutely get out in front of this and, and, you know, use our best science and our intellect to, to plan in advance. Yesterday, Dr. Weisenmiller, I saw a report. It came up on my Sacramento Bee, uh, flash alerts that our levies are in trouble in terms of meeting federal standards. And one of the sections of the report discusses both the Delta and levee safety. And I think a lot of people understand the Delta's importance to our water supply and ecosystems, but I was pretty surprised to read that the levees also protect some of the state's energy infrastructure. Can you help us understand how this works? Oh, sure. And I mean, and one of the great parts of this study is that, that it said not only are we concerned about sea level rise, but also, you know, we're finding that in that area we're also having subsidence going on. So it's a double effect there. And mm-hmm. You know, and, and in terms of there are very critical energy 
facilities in that area. Uh, for example, PG&E has its, its, its gas storage system for its core customers, which allow us to basically pump gas in during the summer and then bring it back in the winter to deal with the, the peak of the gas demands. And that's located in that Delta area. And there's a, a lot of pipelines, transmission lines, energy infrastructure there, all of which can be stressed by this sort of combination of sea level rise and subsidence. And as, as you know, all of us are concerned about the aging gas infrastructure and yeah. trying to make sure that it's safe. So trying to figure out what does it do when you get that infrastructure in an area where, as again, you have the sea level rise, it rise, you have subsidence, and as you said, the vulnerability that, you know, we could be one earthquake away from losing the, the, le- the delta levees there. And so how do we start trying to, to deal with the emergency of, of that situation? As I said, it's a very high-consequence type of event, and that's certainly one of the things that's really motivating Secretary Laird's effort to deal with the Bay Delta issues and to come up with a more sustainable approach towards the Delta, uh, which you know deals with the reality now that we have this combi- combination of overdraft in a lot of areas. We have you know fisheries crashing. We have you know much more uh, allocations of water than are sustainable on a lot mm-hmm. of uh, the Bay Delta system. So it's it's certainly one of the ground zeros for us in terms of environmental policies. Well, and natural gas is becoming more and more important as people realize that this is a cleaner burning fuel. And I was in a meeting just this week with uh, PG&E officials who were talking about that natural gas storage, that they actually are able to fill it up during, you know, summer months when gas prices are low so that it keeps our, uh, our supply, uh, you know, at a steady pricing. Um, many areas of the country experience a real spike in natural gas prices during the winter when we're using more. But because of that natural gas storage field, um, Pacific Gas and Electric is able to keep, um, our supply and our pricing pretty level for this clean burning fuel. Well, if that, infrastructure is in jeopardy um you know right now as far as as i've heard there isn't a plan b for where to put that that tremendous amount of gas storage and so that's a big issue you know dr weisenmiller and dr moser i would love to talk to you all day long this has been a great um introduction to what i'd like to do a part two of and that is how California is using a tremendous uh, base of knowledge and research um, to adapt to climate change to make sure the state is ready to continue to prosper and thrive. And I thank you for joining us on Go Green Radio. To our listeners, we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. So until then, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.